Good morning. It is good to see you this morning. I hope you have a copy of God's Word so you can join along with us. But when you hear those words, as we saw in the video, joy, or you hear the word rejoice, what do you think about? Or what do you think of? Certainly those are uh, great words. We love them. We love to talk about joy. We love to talk about rejoicing. But I want to take it to the next level. What do you think or what do you feel when somebody says to you, when your life sucks, when your life stinks, you need to rejoice and you need to be full of joy? Then those words become very hard, and sometimes they can even cause anger because they're telling us in the midst of our difficult circumstances, our hardship, our hurt, our heartache, our loss, our grief, whatever it is that we're going through, that we are to rejoice. And so sometimes those words, heart, joy, rejoice, and especially as you think about what's been going on in our country, our world, the virus, the upheaval in our country, the bad news that's constantly around us everywhere we turn. You can't turn the TV on. You can't go to your news pages. You can't listen to podcasts without realizing that our world is in chaos. And so, how, when all these things are going on, do we rejoice? And I have to admit, this is one of those things that I struggle with. I struggle with it because my natural fleshly tendency is to go to depression, because I've always struggled with that. Or to go to negativism or cynicism or any of those kinds of things. That's where I want to tend to go if I'm just on my own. And then when somebody tells me to rejoice in the midst of my circumstances, I'm going, how do you really do that? And I have to admit that I really struggle with that at times. Life is hard, our background experiences. Some of you have been through things that, that I can't even imagine what you have gone through. Maybe a sexual abuse, physical abuse. Maybe you're going through financial loss. You've lost your health. Our circumstances affect us. So how do we rejoice? How do we be joy-filled Christians, particularly when life stinks? When life really sucks? How do we live the joy-filled life? Well, this morning we're going to look at the book of Philippians because Philippians is a letter of joy written by a man named Paul to a Philippian church while chained to a Roman guard in a Roman cell around 61 AD, if you'll go to the next slide for me there. Philippians is a letter of joy written by a man named Paul to a Philippian church while chained to a Roman guard in a dingy Roman cell around 61 AD. So if anyone has the right to talk to us about joy when life stinks or life is no good, Paul is that guy. Paul is the guy that can talk to us. And the reason why this letter, this epistle, um, I don't know if you can advance the slides there, whether it's holding up on you there, but the reason why it is called the epistle of joy is in this small little letter, over 14 times, or really 14 times, Paul is going to use the word joy or rejoice. 
14 times you're going to find him in this epistle talking about joy or rejoicing. And then when you add in there words like glad and other things, you find that over and over again, Paul is talking about joy, rejoicing, being glad. And he's not doing it when life is well. He's doing it when life is very hard. When he is, like I said, in the midst of hardship in a prison cell. And so the reason why Paul was different and why he had joy, as that video we saw earlier and as Caleb and the worship team led us, is obviously his focus was different. His focus was, was very different. You see, there was contrasting words. There was joy or rejoicing. And then in the Greek, there was pleasure, which is translated into our word hedonism. And the word hedonism is the philosophy that life is to be lived for pleasure. That pleasure or self-gratification is the highest good. So only when we are pleasing ourselves, only when we are doing what we think makes us happy, will we have true pleasure. And you can obviously see that definition working out in our culture today. We are a hedonistic culture, really like the, the culture of Rome that Paul was working in the midst of. It was a hedonistic culture. If you were to go back and look at the, 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 the Roman society in which Paul was writing, it was really not much different from ours, except they didn't have the technology that we have today to promote that hedonism or to advocate that hedonism. But hedonism was, in their mind, the ultimate goal of anyone's life. But Paul comes in here and talks about joy, and his joy is the focus, is the difference. Joy, someone said, is the fruit of a right relationship with God. It is not something people can create by their own efforts. So Paul had a joy that was centered in God. It was not created by his own efforts. However, there were things that tangibly Paul could latch on to out of his relationship with God that brought him joy. That even when he's sitting in that prison cell, when life stunk, when it was smelly, when it was hard, when it was difficult, when it was discouraging, there were things that Paul found joy in. And I want to highlight those for you this morning in the book of Philippians. And that really is all we're going to do is highlight. Because obviously we don't have time to really delve into all that Paul is going to tell us about. But there are eight things I found in the book of Philippians that gave Paul great joy. First of all, there was the joy of God's people. There was the joy of God's people. Look what he says in Philippians 1 verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. So here is Paul in the dingy cell chained to a Roman guard and sitting there thinking about life and his thoughts immediately goes to this Philippian congregation and he says, and every time that I pray, I do so with joy. 
Right off the bat, Paul makes it known that the Philippians were one of the reasons for joy. Now, we saw in that video, it talked about one of the sources of joy for the Christian is in fellowship. And as believers, we should have joy in the fellowship, the gathering together of God's people. That's why I believe this whole COVID thing, the uh, isolation, the uh, being separated for one another was such a toil, is that there's joy in being together with God's people. Amen. Being together with God's people is what gives us joy. We can come into God's house sad and, and downcast, hang out with other believers, and find that our joy is lifted up or enabled. And that's why I always struggle when people come to me and say, well, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I don't like the church. You know, I've said it before, that's the equivalent of you saying, Ken, I really like you, and I really want to hang out with you, and I really want to know you. I, I really want to be your very best friend. But your wife, she is no good. I want nothing to do with her. You, you know, when people say, I love Jesus, but I don't want the church, do you understand that Jesus is the groom and the church is the bride? Amen. So something is, is oddball about it. I know you've thought about this, but how in the world, if you don't like God's people, are you going to enjoy heaven? Because that's all they're going to be there. Your bar buddies aren't going to be there. All those other people are not going to be there. It's going to be God's people. So it's a strange thing. But Paul said, I have joy because of God's people. And he gives two reasons why. First of all, because of their partnership in the gospel. Look what he says in verse 5. I have joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the very first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. And it's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. Paul rejoiced in the Philippians because they were his partners. You know, one of the things that's neat about a church like this is you're not alone in the, in the work of the Lord. Amen? There's a partnership. And it takes all of us being engaged, all of us working, all of us going out there to win the loss to Christ. Pastor Greg can't do it. Caleb can't do it. Phil can't do it. Becca can't do it. It takes all of us being engaged and doing our part. It's a partnership. And even when you take it outside the context of just a local body, we need other believers. Amen? We need other churches. I heard about uh, Peter was taking a, a group of people on a tour of heaven. And as they were taking this tour of heaven, they passed by this area where it was kind of walled off. And Peter told the group that was falling behind him, he said, shh, shh. And they walked by the area, and after they got by the area, one of the guys said to Peter, Peter, why were you telling us to be quiet right there? He said, because that's where the Baptists are. They think they're the only ones in heaven. You know, and sometimes we think we're the only ones, but we need the partnership of all the churches. But then second of all, there was progress 
their progress in the gospel. Verse 9 and 11, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, if you don't know how to pray for another believer, here is a great prayer because it's a prayer for the progress of fellow believers. And, and that's what brought joy to Paul's heart. It was the fact that they were not just simply existing, they were actually growing in their faith. You want to be a joy-filled congregation? Be a congregation of people that are growing in your walk with Christ, that are growing in your love for Him. Now, having said all that, just as a caveat, just like in marriage, it's not always going to be joyful. Amen? Marriage has its tough times, right? Guys, you can say, okay, because we're here together. Marriage can be tough. I know you'll deal with it later on when you get home and your wife reminds you you shouldn't have said that. Right, Cindy? But marriage is hard. They're going to irritate you. My wife irritates me all the time and vice versa. My children irritate me. Sometimes they agitate me. But overall, as I live my life and married to my wife, there's a joy that comes out of it. Amen? There's a joy. But second of all, Paul had joy because of the spreading of the gospel. Look at verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has now become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become more confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What the only in every way whether in pretense or in truth Christ is proclaimed and in that I what rejoice so here is Paul again in this dingy Roman prison cell chained to this nasty old Roman guard and he had found joy because through his imprisonment the gospel was being spread the gospel was getting to places that it would never have gotten to if Paul was not where he was at this very moment. You see, Paul rejoiced because of the evangelism of unbelievers. The evangelism of unbelievers. He rejoiced because of the encouragement of believers. He rejoiced because of the exaltation of Christ. So through his imprisonment, people that would have never heard the gospel, could you imagine being a pagan Roman guard chained to Paul? Where are you going to go? You, you, you're chained to this guy. Your job is to be here. And so you got to listen to this guy named Paul talk about Jesus all day long. And then he says it was not only just there, but through his ministry, the gospel was being spread throughout the whole imperial guard. That would have never happened if Paul wasn't where he was. 
And he says also believers are being encouraged. More people are sharing because they're hearing my story. And as a result of that, Jesus Christ is being exalted. And he says, as I experience that, he said, that is what gives me great joy. If you want to be a joy-filled Christian, and you want to be a joy-filled church, then be a soul-winning church. That is the cause of the greatest joy. Think about when you have baptisms, what it's like. You clap, you celebrate. Why? Because lives are being changed. Lives are being transformed as a result of the gospel. And third of all, there's the joy of the Christ life. He says not only the joy of Christian fellowship, not only the joy of evangelism, but the joy of the Christ life. He starts off in verse 18b, says, yes, and I will rejoice. And then he tells why. Verse 19, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that, that's far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your con- account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and your joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample calls to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Paul talks about the joy of the Christian life, living the Christian life. And there's two things that I, I, I noticed as I was listening to him that God gave him joy. Number one, the Christ life is a win-win life. It is a win-win life. Did you see that in the text? He's talking to these, these Philippians and he says, you know what? If I die, I get to go be with Jesus. If I live... I get to live for Jesus. That is a win-win life. Amen? Amen? It is a win-win life. When Joseph Tan, he was a Romanian pastor, I had the privilege of meeting Joseph Tan when he came to my church one time. Joseph Tan was a Romanian pastor, and I'm not going to quote exactly, I'm giving you the paraphrase, but he was being held prison in, during Roman, Romanian communism. And the guards had him, and they had a gun to his head, and they told him that if you don't renounce Christ, we're going to kill you. And Joseph Tan looked at those captors and said, if you kill me, you send me to my glory that I may be with Jesus, and that will give me great joy. And if you don't kill me, I'm going to preach Jesus, and that's going to give me great joy. What do you do with an idiot like that, amen? That's a win-win life. It's a win-win life, but then it's also a worthy life. He says, live a life that is worthy of the gospel. When you're living for Jesus, you'll never have any regrets. 
You don't ever have regrets as a parent or as a child, as an employer or an employee, as a student, as a teacher, as a Christian. You won't have to live with bad choices, the guilt of those bad choices. When you're living for Christ, it's when we choose to go on our own, in our own sinful way, that's when our joy is taken away from us. Amen? That's when we lose that joy. Now, the devil comes along and says, well, if you do that, it's going to give you hedonism. It's going to give you pleasure for that moment. But it will not give us lasting joy. So we have the joy of the Christian life. But then in chapter 2, we have the joy of serving others. Now, this is not going to score you any brownie points, but when you live for Jesus, you have the privilege, if you go to the next slide, of serving others. Of serving others. what he's talking about. Look at Philippians 2, verse 1. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy... Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So what happens when we serve others? Well, it promotes unity, doesn't it? That's what he says there. He says, man, serve other people and unity will emerge. Imagine being in a church where everyone in the church practice what Paul is teaching or advocating here in verses 1 through 4. That we look out not for our own interests, but also for the interest of others. The natural tendency of all of us is we think about ourselves. We think about ourselves when it comes to the decisions we make, our votes in a business meeting, whatever it may be. We're always thinking about ourselves, about our comfort, about our, our rights, about our desires. We're talking about us all the time. It's like that country song, I want to talk about me, talk about me, talk about me. And, and we're all narcissistic like that. But imagine if everybody in the church came here on Sunday morning and said, I'm not here for me, I'm here for other people. What kind of church would that be like? That would be an awesome church to be a part of. So it promotes unity, but then it also portrays Christ. And we won't read all these verses, but it says in verse 5, Now have this mind among yours, which was in Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to talk about the life of Jesus, that it was a life of service, wasn't it? That he laid down his glory, his exaltation, in order to become a man so that he could serve us. And how did he serve us? By going where? To the cross. That was certainly not a joyful experience, but Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, it was for the joy of the cross that was set before him that he endured it. That is, he realized what he was doing in his death, in his sacrifice, in his suffering, was helping other people, saving other people, and that brought great joy to his heart. And so when we serve others, there's great joy. But let's move on. There's the joy of growing in Christ. Verse 12 through 18, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 
Now, that's not saying there that we work for our salvation or anything like that. He's saying, make your salvation come alive. Make your salvation more than a confession. Make it a life that you live. Work it out. Let it work its way out of your life. For it is God, verse 13, who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be, look at this, proud of you, that I did not run in vain, even as I am poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. Now listen to this, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. So what is Paul talking about here? He's talking about growing in our faith, right? Amen? Wake up out there, folks. Phil, go run and get us some more Tim Horton coffee. They haven't had enough caffeine. Yeah, he's talking about growing. What causes apparent joy? Isn't it seeing your children grow up and become mature, responsible adults? Isn't that what gives you joy? Think about a parent that is cradling and comes to church on a Sunday morning, is cradling a, a little infant. And you say, oh, isn't he cute? How old is he? About three months? Oh, no, he's 30 years of age. that's not going to cause joy. The joy is seeing them grow up and develop and mature in the same way in our Christian life. And he tells us some ways that we need to grow. Number one, we grow in our obedience. That's what he tells us in verse 12 when he says, as you have always obeyed, now much more work that out. Work out your obedience. Not just when somebody's standing there telling you this is the way you live for Christ, but learn to obey even when there's nobody there. In your dependence. He goes on to say there that it's God who is willing and working in you. What is that saying? Is that we can't grow naturally on our own. It takes God giving us the desire to grow and then enabling us to be able to grow. And so the Christian life is growing in dependence upon Him. The more I live for the Lord, and it's been 45 years now, the more I realize how much I need Him because I realize how inadequate I am. But then I like this word, in his influence. Because he says, now you will be as lights that are shining in the darkness. Your, your influence upon society, your influence upon the community, your influence on your family will begin to spread. And Paul says that's joy. But then we need to move on. There's the joy of Christian leadership. He says there's a reason to rejoice, and that is in those that serve us. Chapter 2, verse 28 says, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him. He's talking about Epaphroditus, and we'll deal with him later. That I may be less anxious. But look at this, verse 29. So receive him in the Lord with what? Joy and honor such men. 
Now, this follows on the heels of Paul talking about three different key leaders that the Philippians have had in their Christian life. One of them is Paul, the other is Timothy, and then the last one is Epaphroditus. And each of them modeled a different characteristic of leadership that really we need to rejoice in in our leaders. Number one, there's Paul, verse 17, who demonstrates sacrifice. Paul is in a prison because he was preaching the gospel. He made a great sacrifice. I remember when I was in Moscow, uh, I taught Bible college there for about four weeks. And we got to go visit one of the Baptist churches there in town. It was First Baptist Church of Moscow. Beautiful building. And, and it had a tall chancellery that the pastor would climb up into. I don't know, I would work well in it, Phil, because it was only about this big around, and I would have probably fallen off the stage because I would have wanted to move around. But they had this beautiful pulpit up here, and I, I decided that I would climb up in there because I just wanted to see and say, I stood in a pulpit in Moscow. And while I was standing there, my interpreter that was with me said to me, he said, Many a man climbed into that pulpit and preached the gospel and descended from that pulpit and were never seen again. They gave their life for Christ. Pastors make many great sacrifices. Christian leaders make many great sacrifices. Timothy models single-mindedness. Paul says there's not anybody else like Timothy. And by the way, we can't obviously touch on everything. Take this outline and go back and read Philippians again. But he says Timothy has a single-mindedness about him. He, he's focused on the gospel. He's focused on serving you. Paul says everybody else that used to be, they had all their other little things that they wanted to do. Their big programs, their accomplishments, their other things. But this guy, he stayed focused. And then there's Epaphroditus, just a, a good old servant boy. He says, Epaphroditus brings you great joy. And so he says there that those who lead us, those who serve us in our faith are a reason for joy. It's why I'm always bothered and troubled a little bit when people have the preacher for lunch on Sunday afternoon. I was a pastor for 35 years. I know what it's like to be criticized. I know what it's like to be ostracized by our congregation. And let me say something to you about your pastor, Pastor Greg. I know this is going to be a bombshell. Are you ready for this? I'm going to let it out. I'm going to tell you the truth about him. Something you did not know. He is not a perfect man. gasps all across the congregation. Your pastor will never be perfect. He'll never do everything right. He'll never say everything right. He'll not make every right decision. He'll not always be at the right place at the right time doing the right thing. He'll not always have the right attitude. Preachers get uh, their panties in a wad just like everybody else does. Amen. I'm sorry, Cindy. See, I told you to quit saying things because now it slips out of my mouth. That was my wife's statement. I didn't know that word before she came into my life. And, and you know what? If you spent enough time with Paul and Epaphroditus and Timothy, you would have found out they were not perfect either. 
Paul had his problems. Probably there were days that Paul was, was really a difficult person to be around, probably had a bad attitude. Some days, well, we know that because he and Barnabas had a falling out, don't we? But overall, these men were reasons for joy. Find reasons to rejoice in your pastor. I just sent a, a note to my pastor this morning, Dave Early over at First Baptist, just telling him that I want to give thanks to God for you, for your sacrifice, for your service, for your single-mindedness. He's a gifted teacher. He's a gifted writer. He can make a whole lot more money doing something other than being a preacher. But he's chosen to do that because he wants to serve people. And I can rejoice in that. Seventh of all, and we're winding down here, there's the joy of our salvation. Finally, my brothers, verse 1 of chapter 3, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for me. And what follows on the heels of that rejoicing is Paul reminding them of the great salvation that they experienced. Now, there were joy killers in the Philippian church. He tells us about him in verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. You know, I, I don't know how some of these health, wealth, prosperity, everything is wonderful. Joel Osteen people would deal with a text like this. But Paul just calls me and says, you're a bunch of dogs. You're a bunch of flesh mutilators. Because there were these people that were slipping into the Philippian church and saying, man, it's not enough to believe in Jesus. you got to keep the law. And so they were cracking the whip and saying, you got to do all these things. And man, God is going to strike you down if you don't do them all. And their joy was being robbed. And Paul drops back and says, you know, be, away, be wary of those guys. They want to steal your joy. They are the joy killers of your salvation. But Paul says, let me remind you of what you have. And it's a powerful, powerful text. I wish we had time. In fact, I'm coming back, I think in August, and I may preach on this, but three things about our salvation. But the thing for you to understand is that the reason why Paul is saying, don't listen to those law bearers that want to put you into law because you have been made righteous in Christ. We have a righteousness that is ours that we can't get anywhere else. There's, first of all, positional righteousness. That is what's called justification. That is that we, when we receive Jesus Christ, we are instantly, simultaneously made righteous before him. Verse 8, Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. Verse 9, That I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Jesus Christ. The righteousness from God that depends upon faith. I want you to understand something. When you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, or when you choose to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, instantaneously, simultaneously, at that very moment, you are made completely right with God. Huh? What did I say? You are made completely right with God. And God's people said... Amen. 
There is nothing more you can do to be any more right with God or to be in a right standing with God. Now, folks, if that doesn't give you joy, you're missing the Christian life. That is called justification. But then we have progressive righteousness. That's sanctification, not that I've already obtained it, because we still have to live that life out, don't we? So our position is instantly we're made right with God, but our progress, our lifestyle isn't lined up with our position. So sanctification is the process of God lining up our practice with our position. Amen? That's sanctification. And he says, verse 12 there, I've not already obtained it, but I'm pressing on. And so there's a joy in continuing to grow in holiness. And then there's perfect righteousness. Glorification, verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to him. That is, when Jesus Christ returns, we're going to get a new body and we are going to be perfect in our righteousness. Our position and our practice are going to be perfectly aligned. No more sin, no more suffering, no more bad choices. And Paul says, that is something you will never find keeping the law. Rejoice, because someday you're going to be made perfect. Rejoice, because right now you are being made perfect. Rejoice right now, because you have been made righteous in Jesus Christ. Therefore, he says in verse 1, Therefore, my brothers of chapter 4, whom I love and long for, you are my joy and my crown. Stand firm in the Lord. And then finally, and we close quickly here, there's the joy of the Lord that Paul experienced even in a jail cell. Verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. And I say again, I will rejoice. We come to the 8th. And final calls for joy, and it really is the greatest. And it is the presence of God in our lives. And again, I wish we had time to really deal with it, but just four things that Paul alludes to that we experience. Number one, we have his peace in our life. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds. He talks about peace in the fellowship. He tells Yudia and Sintik to get along with one another. And then he talks about peace in our own heart where we're conflicted and torn by life and by circumstances that we experience. And then his power. Verse 10, Paul is struggling or they, they think he's struggling because of the stuff that he's going through. And he says in verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We can rejoice in his power in life, his provision. He says, and my God, verse 19, will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. Paul faced financial difficulties. But Paul had joy even in that time because he knew God's provision. And then finally, the one that I want to highlight for just a moment is his pleasure. Notice what he says as he winds up the little book. Verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all. It's interesting to note that he began the book of Philippians talking about grace. He ends the book of Philippians talking about grace. And A.W. Tozer, the great, great theologian, said grace is the good pleasure of God. 
that inclines him to bestow benefits upon the undeserving. You ever thought about God's grace as his pleasure in you? And so Paul starts with grace, he ends with grace. Do you realize that we are Christian Oreos? We're cream sandwiched by God's grace. From beginning to end, it's all about grace. All about grace. And therefore, no matter where we are, to know that, that we can have his pleasure. Even Paul in that prison cell knew God's pleasure in his life. Principal Rainey, it was said of him by a child that she believed that he went to heaven every night because he was so very happy. Now, not everybody is going to be that way. But here is the statement that Rainey made that I think is a great definition of joy. He said this, Joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. Joy is the flag which is flown from the castle of the heart when the king is in residence there. And I dare say, if you spend time with Paul, the flag was up because the king was in residence there. Joy. Rejoice. We have many things to rejoice in, don't we? Don't we? So when you're feeling down and you're feeling blue, and this is not a message about you ought not to feel that way because the reality of it is we all do. We all do. Sometimes it's because life stinks. Sometimes it's because we ate the pizza too late at night. It's not saying you're not going to feel those things. It's saying even when you feel those things, we can still rejoice if the focus is right. Lord, I want to thank you for these words from this great, great man, Paul. Lord, people could throw rocks at me because, Lord, I, I don't always demonstrate joy. I struggle with it. But how do, you, how do you struggle or say something about a guy like Paul telling us about joy, living out a life of joy in a prison cell? Some of you here this morning, you've never experienced the joy of true salvation. You're still under the burden of the law. You're still striving, struggling to try to get right with God. You're trying to be a better person. You're trying to do more. You're trying to help people. You're trying to do things for people. You're trying to clean up your life. You're working really, really hard. And you hope that someday when you get to heaven, God will say, man, you really tried hard. Come on into heaven. No, it doesn't work that way. The reality is, it's not just that you need to get better. It's that you need to get saved. So if you're here today and you don't have the joy of salvation in your life, I want to invite you to just simply say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'll never be able to get right with you on my own. I will never be able to obtain your standard. And thank God I don't have to. Jesus did for me. I receive Jesus Christ into my heart as my Lord and Savior. 
take control of my life and make me the person you want me to be. If you prayed that prayer with me, I invite you when the service is over. I'll be hanging around at the front. Come up and say something to me. Let us help you begin that journey. But maybe you're a believer already, and most of you are, but maybe today found you at a place of despair and despondency and discouragement and depression, frustration, cynicism, negativism. We have many reasons for joy. And let's focus on the source of joy and the fountain of joy, the Lord. And one of the ways we do that is we focus on what is coming. You ever listen to the old gospel songs that were sung by, unfortunately, those that were enslaved in the early days? They didn't speak about life getting better on the earth spoke about heaven because they knew it wasn't going to get better here it was only in heaven that everything was going to be right and what a glorious day that is going to be when we march into the presence of God and everything is going to be well with our soul thank you Lord we rejoice and we celebrate you today in Jesus name Amen let's stand as we close out with this song